I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When I was younger, around 8, 9, 10, 11, you couldn't walk the streets. You would have a curfew at 8 p.m. the whole city because you would hear gunshots. You would see some people with dead in the streets, and it was very dangerous. Welcome back to Coffee and Football. I'm Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview style podcast where I sit down to learn about the lives and careers of some of the most interesting profiles involved in the game. This week, I speak with Alejandro Guido. He's an American professional player of Mexican descent who lives in San Diego in the U.S., but plays for Club Tijuana in the Mexican Top League, which means that he crosses the border every single day to get to his practices and games. I had the opportunity to sit down with him just recently while he was in New York for the Kicking and Screening Soccer Film Festival. And he was here specifically for the premiere of the Club Frontera documentary that tells the story of Club Tijuana, a team that was founded less than 10 years ago, but already is one of the best in Liga MX. It's the story of a team that helped reshape a city and a society that most typically is associated with drug cartels, violence, corruption, and immigrants on their way up north to cross the U.S. border. Alejandro takes us through both his personal journey and that of the teams, and how the two intersect. It's truly an amazing story that highlights all the positive effects that intermixing people of different descent, cultures, and belief systems can have on a society. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this one. And let's dive straight into it. Alejandro, it's a great pleasure to to have you here. Thank you for for taking the time and uh, welcome to uh, the Coffee and Football podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to talk some football. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's it's very nice. I love New York. I love the vibe around the city. Uh, I feel it's a bit similar to Tijuana in the sense that you can get um, a lot of people from all over the world. And since Tijuana is a border town with the U.S. and there's a lot of businesses from 
from all over the world that are interested in, in the location of Tijuana because it's so close to the U.S. and um, you get a lot of people around and a lot of um, interesting stories. Yeah, I can imagine, and and we'll we'll dive deep deep into these stories uh, today. Uh, but first off, and uh, a question I always have to ask because the theme is coffee and football here. Uh, and we had some offline conversations about, about coffee and where the coffee and football name came from. Uh, my first question is, one, do you drink coffee and how do you like it? And uh, yeah, and if so, where, what are your, your preferences? Uh, I do drink coffee. I love my coffee. And um, I was actually introduced a little bit late to coffee. My parents used to always drink it, but I was never into it much until I met my girlfriend whose family is owners of some coffee shops. Oh, really? Yeah. In, in Tijuana? In Tijuana, right. Uh, they used to have like this famous brand called De Volada. And uh, well, they were more of like, they were partners. And later on, they branched out. And now they have one that's called Gatso. And they have multiple locations in Tijuana. And hopefully I can get into that too, because I love my coffee. Um, and for what I drink, hmm, it just depends, you know, like on a nice, relaxed Sunday morning, like my, my dark Americano, pour over. Or if it's just before a game, maybe I like to just a little shot of espresso, just different kinds. Um, I usually like my cappuccinos, you know, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I'm going to have to hit you guys up after this. Maybe we need to get some some coffee shipped over to uh, to the show here as well. For sure, yeah. We'd love to. It's actually Inteligencia when we sell. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get that set up. Uh, so you are in New York City now, uh, not with the team, but you're here um, for the Soccer Film Festival, kicking and screening that's been going on this week, uh, where you have a prominent role in, in one of the films, a documentary about the, your team, the Cholos of Tijuana. What has the experience been like to be here uh, w- with the film in this capacity? Man, I just feel so blessed to be here. Like, I would have never thought that this would be my current situation right now, especially because as a soccer player, you're always thinking of like, oh, the next game or maybe playing with the national team or just you're thinking about soccer and games like taking care of your body and things like that. But so I just feel so blessed to be in the situation because I've, I had a serious injury and, um, it's just two serious injuries and it's been opening up my eyes. What happened? I tore my ACL on my right leg seven months ago. And then I got back, played two games and I tore my left. Oh, well. ACL. Yeah. How's the recovery coming along? It's coming along well. Um, right now I'm in that phase where it's mostly just getting back the range of motion, taking care of the uh, inflammation and things like that. It's, it's early on still, but it's going very well. Um, I have the experience from the other one, so I'm, I think it's going to be much better than the last one. I just want to ask first a little bit about the, um, it, your involvement in, in the film. Like, How did that come about? And uh, 
had you been interested before in, in kind of like that side of it or was it an entirely kind of new world that, that was exposed? It was an entirely new world that was exposed. Um, I had no idea that this was happening. One time, uh, one day my brother calls me and he tells me that there's this guy interested that used to go to the same high school as he did and who's a filmmaker and he wants to make a movie about cholos and he wanted to talk to me just because of the unique situation which we were in because they, um, in San Diego and Tijuana, it's very common for a lot of people that live in Tijuana to go cross the border every day and go to school in the U.S. and then come back to Tijuana and live there. So it's, yeah, it's very common. And there's a big group of uh, people that do that. And it's especially in Catholic schools. There's a big group of uh, Catholic schools that will have that, those types of persons coming, people going. And um, uh, the director, Chris Cashman, he used to go to one of those schools. It was an all-boys school called St. Augustine. And uh, my brother used to go there as well. And, uh, yeah, um, that's how they knew each other, and that's how Chris knew about, like, like that unique story of like people crossing over the border just to go to school. And he knew that I had something similar. So he thought it was a perfect idea to talk about that in the film. Did you get involved pretty kind of early on when they started this, uh, this whole process and of filming? Cause it, it, it took how long? Yes. It took around three to four years. Yeah. It was, it was long, long process. But, um, yeah, I did. It was early on. Actually, he's the one that posted a Facebook message right early on in the early stages. And he was like, Hey, I'm doing a film about the Cholos. Does anyone know anything about it? Cause I don't. <laughs> and, uh, instantly some of his contacts told him, Oh, Michael Guido, he has a, he has a brother at place for the Cholos. You should check him out. So right on from the early stages, I was in, in with the movie. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so today you're a, you're a professional player with the, with the Cholos. Take me through a, a typical day from the moment you, we- you get up and what kinds of routines do you have and, and from there on. I'll tell you when I, used, when I, when I was playing, because it's, it's changed right now since I'm in therapy. I have to do different things. But what I like to do was wake up. Usually you have practice at 9 in the morning. I would wake up um, 7, 6.30 a.m. I like to wake up, give me some time so I can stretch, relax. I have this uh, relaxation technique that I use, and I just breathe, deep breathing. Take me through that. It's just basically um, you breathe 10 times, and it's uh, you hold it in for four seconds, and then you let it out for another four. And it's you do that 10 times, and it just helps me relax, you know? And then um, just put my objectives of the things I want to get through through the day. And then um, go get my coffee. <laughs> of course. Yes, my coffee. Um, usually I catch my parents. I still live with my parents. Catch my parents um, going through their routine as well. Sometimes we coincide and sometimes we don't. But um, we have a good talk. And then after that, um, I have my good breakfast. I have to have a Big breakfast, big breakfast, which is usually just getting my, uh, my veggies. I like to eat veggies in the morning, 
my fruit, my portion of carbs, and my protein. And then uh, after that, I'll head on my way. That usually takes me like an hour, an hour and a half. Then uh, I'll leave uh, from San Diego to Tijuana. And uh, during that hour, I usually get traffic because of school and everything. Uh, so I have to leave at least an hour early further <laughs> so I don't have any problems with the coach. So you essentially you go across the border every single day to, to get to practice right. and get e to work. Exactly. Right. Every single day. And it's very neat. Like I enjoy the just the scenery I get crossing every day, seeing different people, going to work, going to school, some people crossing and doing the opposite thing that I did when I was young. That was uh, like waking up and going to school. Some people now are just going to work in Tijuana and living in San Diego like I am now. So, yeah, I get there. Then I get there uh, 30 minutes before to an hour before, depending on the traffic. And uh, we'll use that time to do, uh, prepare our body, like a warm-up, and also to um, get some strengthening in the lower part of your body just to prevent injuries, prevention of injuries. And, yeah, we, we have a trainer for that. We do that before practice, and then practice starts. We have practice for around two hours. And after that, we do another hour of gym. It's more upper body. That's a pretty pretty long sessions. Yeah, no, it is. I typically and stay there for four to five hours. Yeah, it's does also, that Does that work for you? Do, you? do you like that kind of a setup? It does. I mean, I feel like that's it's necessary now, you know, with uh, with soccer, just like the level increasing and like there's so many things there's so many things that you can do to gain an advantage from your opponent and people are just looking for new ways that it's a must now so yeah i think four to five hours is is enough but maybe we need more who knows it just depends on you does everybody at the, the border patrol they they know you by now no you know it's a funny thing it changes often like i rarely get the same person it's always a new one how does it work take me through that because well i think that but by now most people around the world know roughly where, where tijuana is it's very close mm -hmm. to san diego on the border obviously but in the kind of mainstream media everybody has this chaotic picture of of that border you know people i guess coming from that from from mexico into the u.s and and it's like this whole chaotic scene right right, right. so can you just describe kind of what, what the reality actually uh, looks like so it used to be very chaotic to be honest very chaotic but uh on both sides of the border both governments have been improving everything and it's so different from what it was five or ten years ago it's amazing the new infrastructure that there is and it's a lot more organized so there's um i'm gonna tell you like how it is it's very close though so uh there's around i think they just opened 30 to 40 lanes for you to cross and it's divided into like people that don't have um that don't have the fast pass the show that's the fast pass which i have right now then there's the the ones that have um uh it's called i can't remember the name right now but uh it's just other people other different types of documents and then there's the ones that don't have documents so there's three different lines and uh usually the ones that don't have documents take up to three to four hours to cross in a bad day one to two hours in a normal day 
the ones with uh, with the other documents, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, they usually take an hour, and then the sentry takes 30 minutes. But before, when the sentry didn't exist, everyone would, used to be together. And it would. I remember that I had to wake up at 5 in the morning, 4, 4.30 in the morning, and uh, to get to school at 8. So I would do two to three hours minimum. And yeah, it would be brutal, but luckily I have amazing parents that would do all that because I'd be sleeping in the car. What do your uh, parents do or what what have they typically done for, for a living when you were growing up? When I was growing up, well, they had, uh, through my dad's side, they had a lot of family businesses, which were like, they had car washes, uh, they had a gasoline station, they had... They would make uh, lamps. They had a factory and made lamps in Mexico City, and they would like uh, just take them all over Mexico. My dad was—he used to drive a lot, like the the trucks, and uh, like distribute it all over Mexico. Yeah. What's the most important advice would you say that they've given you that you carry with you today? Shoot. <laughs> It's something. It's it's something I always tell them. Like you always tell me to shoot. I understand by now, <laughs> but nah. Um, uh, I would say they tell me, don't get in the rat race. Just be happy. Do what you want to do. Doesn't matter if it's not gonna be just as a. You're not going to make as much money or you're not going to be as successful, but success is sometimes just happiness. That's a big one. I totally agree with you on that. Um, in order to get to know you kind of more personally, is there anything I need to know about the place where you grew up? Um, Tijuana, as most of you guys know, has a very bad stigma of insecurity. And that was true when I was younger around eight nine ten eleven you couldn't walk the streets they you would have a curfew at 8 p.m the whole city because you would hear gunshots you would see some people with dead in the streets and it was very dangerous and um yeah but that's changed that's changed completely and um in the film cholos it talks about how cholos also helped bring like some of that bad stigma out take it out because it would bring americans into tijuana again and they would start seeing how tijuana has improved a lot and it's not that's not the case of insecurity anymore you know but um also tijuana is um it's a city with a lot of nationalities it's a city where a lot of people cross every single day there's the most it's the border town with the most uh i guess cross people that cross over and in the world and um yeah uh there's a lot of businesses that consist of just transporting things from tijuana to san diego and back and forth and uh it's a very neat town it has a lot of great things and there's just a lot of neat things can you tell me well, obviously you have very strong influences uh, in, in the Mexican culture uh, as well as in the American culture. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how do you typically identify yourself and how does that kind of express itself? Like, Because you have the, the duality, yes, obviously. 
you work in Mexico and you're very surrounded by the culture, by the food and, and everything else with that. But as a contrast, you play for, for the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and you've been very prominent with the U.S. Uh, youth national teams. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in the in Jürgen Klinsmann's roster soon. How does that, I guess, the, 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 the balance and the contrasts uh, be, between those two cultures kind of express itself? So I'm going to tell you as a soccer player how's it, how it's influenced me because that's what I am. But it's also influenced, influenced me as a player. Um, so when I was young, I would, uh, play in Tijuana in the mornings and then in the afternoons I would go and play in in San Diego. This was on a Saturday and Sunday and I would practice throughout the week in, in Tijuana and then Tuesdays and maybe Wednesdays I would go in the U S and practice with another team. So I was getting so I was practicing with the Mexican team and I was getting their, their, just the differences, you know, the technical ability from them and like more of a tactical ability. And then I would go in the U.S. and it'd be more physical, more like rough. And I would get that part as well. So I thought, I think that built me up to the player that I am, a player that's been able to identify the differences more easily. And, uh, of, because I had two contrasts, you know, so I would identify like, oh, look, this is different from over there. And then I would, uh, then when I got older and I would go to different, uh, different countries, like Holland, I was in Holland for, for six months and I would just see more differences. And then when I would play with different national teams, I would be like, oh, this is different from that. So that I think living and getting those two contrasts of, of the, American culture and the Mexican culture helped me identify uh, just the differences. And plus, it gave me, from the Mexican side, the more technical and tactical, and from the U.S., the more physical. So I think um, that's how it's built me as a player and as a person as well. When was the moment that you realized that you had a certain talent for the sport and had maybe an opportunity to to one day become a pro because I don't think I have to ask you what your dreams were growing up (laughs) because clearly there's been one big dream and and you're in the middle of it or in the beginning stages of it right now but when did it kind of hit you that okay I'm actually quite talented and and I might be able to take some next steps within this I think it was all since I was young, like I got the ball. I remember like when I was young, I would play and they would always put me with the older kids. I would play with all the older kids. I remember, uh, I even went, they took me to this tournament, which were kids that were four years older than me in that age group. It's like a big difference. And they, they threw me in as a right back and I excelled and they were, that was, they named me the best player of the team in that tournament. What team was that with? It was uh, with a Club Amateur Guadalajara. It's a local team from Tijuana that they play at Romero Manso. And um, they would uh, make like the best, they would pick like the best players from each um, team and then they would take them to Copa Chivas, which is a cup in Guadalajara that Chivas makes and like a lot of uh, teams around the 
Mexico would go. And they now have the international tournament where all over the world they go. But yeah, that was, I think that was, uh, was like, oh, I, I think I have something in me and that I can play. And, and then like they would put me in my division and I would score a bunch of goals or paradises. But I think the biggest part was like, I understood the game very young and, uh, I loved it so much that I would watch so many games and I would like keep getting better and always wanted to get better and still want to get better. And I think that's helped me identify that I had something to, to go into the pros. When did the conversation start about the uh, national teams? It started when I was 14. Uh, I went with the U.S. No, I went with Mexico first. Chucho Ramirez identified me. Uh, he was the winner of the World U17 World Cup with Mexico. Um, they, but at the time, I didn't have a club. They saw me through the, it's called Olimpia Nacional, which are the Olympics, but for just the, for Mexico. So each uh, state uh, brings their, their best players and they compete against another state. And uh, we won it, actually. And since then, uh, they called me into the national team. But I was the, uh, there was two players that didn't have a club and I was one of them. And, uh, when Chucho left, the new coach came in and he told me I needed to have a club. Like, or I was going to get kicked out of the national team. So I went with the diff different clubs that wanted me. And, but they all wanted more than seven years of contract. It was ridiculous. Like they would offer me, great money they would offer my parents to go and live in uh in mexico but um and give them a job and everything but it just seemed ridiculous that i was going to be seven, seven years. years it was a seven-year contract i remember it must be a quite unique rule because i think at least today i think the maximum is maybe five years or something yeah it was definitely something tricky that they're trying to do and hold me over there but they were also giving me a very good deal which made me think about it. I was already living down there and uh, they were, I was happy like because I I'd found a, a good, uh, well-known team and they were uh, going to give me like a ridiculous deal for me to play. And I was such a young age and they would tell me that I was going to play the first team eventually and they had a big project. So as a kid, you had all these sweet things and they were talking sweet to you and you were like, oh yeah, let's do it. But at the same time, you're like, huh, is this the best decision for me? And my parents were, were supporting me. They told me they would support me with anything I wanted to do. But sometimes I was like, man, I just wish you took the decision. <laughs> Did you have an agent involved already then? Or? Yes. They, they made me involve an agent very early on the national team. And then, so we were already over there. We packed our stuff and everything. And that, it was a neat story because we were trying to reduce the years. If they would have said five years, I would have done it, but they didn't want to because they, I don't know, they were just investing so much and they were scared that I might leave once I hit that age. And um, we were at a Carl's Jr. with our, our, all our stuff in the car and we had the contract and it was like, should I stay or should I not? I already had school, I already had everything. Where was that at? This was, I'd rather not say. Okay. Just, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, um, 
I uh, we had a moment that I'm like, should I do it or should I should I not? And that was the moment, and we ended up saying no. Like we, I, I'm gonna go back to to the states, do high school, and uh, you know, just have my life. You know, here they already wanted to sign me for seven years. You don't never know what's gonna happen. Like a lot of things change in soccer, and um, it's not stable. And then what happened with the national team? So then uh, the national team stopped calling me because I didn't have a club. Yes. And um, so I kept playing with my in San Diego and in Tijuana. And then ODP, which is the... the Olympic Development the, Program. Exactly, for the U.S., uh, identified me in California. Then I went to regionals. Then from regionals, I went to the national team. And ever since then... I've stayed with the U.S., been through the processes of U14s, U15s, U17s, U20s, U23s, and hopefully one, one day the full men's national team. Were you at the IMG Academy? Were you at, at the residence program as well? I was. I was. I was there for two and a half years, actually. And in they, Florida? In Florida, yes, with Wilmer Cabrera, who was my coach. And yeah, um, I learned a lot from that time. But I was there for two and a half years. They prepared us for the U17 World Cup. And, uh, yeah, I, I went back to Mexico to play the World Cup. And all of my team, that used to be my teammates from Mexico, won the World Cup. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I was like, oh, what the heck? Imagine if I would have stayed over there. Maybe I would have been a champion of how the world. You, how did you guys do? Uh, we, we did okay. We got, we, we were past the group stages. We beat Czech Republic. Then we lost to Uzbekistan. And then tied New Zealand, we went through, and then played Germany, and they kicked us out. Then after that, like the high school years, what what was your kind of the first like proper team then that you went to? Uh, Vitesse. I was there with Vitesse. How did, uh, how did that happen? Well, after the World Cup, I had several offers, but they were one of the most serious ones. And um, that's how they identified me, and my dream is to play in Europe. So... It was a no-brainer, and, ho- and Holland is a very good league to start and develop, right? A lot of young players. And um, it just happened. Um, I went over, and I was, it was for, for a month first, and they really liked me. I was training with the first team and everything at 17 years old, and uh, I would get some games in, but it was more of like the – it was when they were in preseason, so I would get preseason games. And uh, – I did very well. They liked me a lot. So they, I came back to finish something for school. And then uh, I went over again. But this time I stayed for four months because they would, they told me that they were going to sign me and they showed me the contract and everything. But I just needed to turn 18. So I was just waiting for me to turn 18. And during that time, uh, Abramovic, one of his partners bought, uh, Vites and they started bringing bunch of players from Chelsea and the first team had over 30 players and I was still there and I was still excelling but it just things had changed so um uh, I came back to finish high school I had a month left and they told me that they were gonna when I turned 18 I was gonna fly over and I was gonna sign the contract and uh prior to that a month prior to that uh, we were sending messages and he stopped, they stopped replying. And it, it was just weird. 
it's and uh, I started getting a bit worried. So uh, I was like, oh well, I told my agent, hey, um, let's start preparing because these guys are are being shady about it. And um, so I started training with Club Tijuana that had sent me while I was at Holland. They sent me through Facebook. This guy was just telling me, hey, are you interested? We liked how you play. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to to go and train. But I was like still hesitant because they were fighting relegation at, at that moment. And my dream was always to play in Europe. But my other dream was to play in my hometown in front of everyone. I was like, hmm, it's attractive. So uh, while I was waiting for the thing to, of Holland to just to see what happens, um, I went and trained with the Tijuana for, with Tijuana and I loved it. Like I loved my routine, like living with my parents. Uh, I had, since I was, I moved out when I was in Florida, um, it was nice to be back with them. Like my friends from high school that I was there only one year and had a great time. Them all seeing me play down there practicing and like there was some great players. Uh, they had Cachareva de uh, Uruguay. They had Fernando Arce from the national team. Leandro Augusto from the national team. So I was like, oh, those are good players that I can learn from. They're midfielders, they're experienced, and they have a lot of things to offer. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, this could help me a lot. It's a, it's a good environment. And then they would tell me about the plans of the future and how they wanted to grow and be one of the best. So it caught my attention. Then the uh, my 18th birthday came. And they'd responded, but they'd been weird about it. And um, they just then I got an email, and they told me, "Hey, look, uh, the, these things, these changes happened, and uh, right now there's some a lot of players, so we would want you to wait another six months to see how." So I was like, "You know, I can't do this. It's either now or or never. Maybe in the future, but not like I can't wait another six months." So that's when I started looking into more of the Tijuana and the MLS option. And um, I was in between Tijuana or MLS and other Mexican teams. But so you were in conversations with the with the MLS as well? Yeah, I was. They were going to offer me a Generation Adidas. But I was always looking for my development. And I thought Mexican League at the moment was a better option for my development because I was going to be exposed to better players. Before we get further in on, on Cholos, uh, I just want to ask you, what were your initial impressions like when you, when you came to Holland in terms of the level of play and uh, the style of play? Oh, I was impressed by the level of play. I was impressed by the the type of football they try to play. They were, uh, first of all, it was a very young league, so it was very dynamic. And I remember when I got there, the first warm-up, I would, like, usually it's just, like, without the ball in the U.S. I was used to warm-ups in the residency, and you're stretching everything in here. The first thing we did, start passing, boom, boom, pass, pass, pass. And I remember the first pass I received, it was a bullet, man. I was like, what the hell? What is this guy doing? He's like five feet away from me and he's trying to like blast it in my foot. And I had to get used to that and I loved it. I was like, man, this is much better. It's faster, faster. 
They were just pinging it, pinging it, pinging it. And, um, and then I, I started looking at the formation. It was 4-3-3. And, and what they would ask for me is play to the wide and get in the box as a double, as a number nine, like a surprise and like make those runs in between lines, get it in between lines. And I was like, Oh, this is what I've always wanted to do. You know, it's so hard for me to like to find these spaces over there because usually there's not a player like a number five that or those are the center defenders that play you that ball so you can beat, beat the, the center defensive mid and with spacing run at the, at the center backs and then play a through ball or open it wide and then it was hard for me to find those situations and there I was finding myself in those situations constantly and it was better for me because I would always have an advantage and I can show my talent and yeah and I just learned so much from my time over there I thought I thought um I just thought that it was a system that worked very well for me and I I thought that that was the way to play football all my life and it just confirmed to me over there that that was the right thing to do and then uh, going to cholos after that how would you describe the the differences uh, between between Vitesse and uh, and cholos in this case and also you know holland and and mexico and and the way they right. go it was completely different i was so shocked i was like man this is so different because over there it was a bunch of young players dynamic you were always going at it and then here in Cholos, you get there and there are a bunch of experienced players that have just so much experience and they know they've, they've been around the block, you know, they know what they're doing. They know what to do. They know how to intimidate a player. And I thought, I was like, Hey, that's something useful that I need to know. So that interested me. I had Cacharevalo who, tiene el colmillo, está acá. Arce, who's been Mexican national team for years. They were just a bunch of experienced players and, when I got there, I kind of, uh, I kind of stood out just because I was with that dynamic play from Holland and they were more of like, pass it around, pass it slow, slow transition, slow, uh, build up play. And then once you messed up ones, there they, they just nailed you. They punish you. They yeah. punish you. Yeah. And, um, so I, I would bring that, that different, part of soccer and i think that's what chose was so interested in me at the moment and um but yeah that, that i thought that was very interesting and i thought that i could develop a lot as a player learning that that as well because coming from something from holland which i already knew i thought i'd not dominated but i like knew i thought this adding this to my just to my repertoire of soccer and that I would get better and be more complete. Tell me about your first real debut and the lead up into that. That was actually the Copa. It was with Turco Mohamed. And um, it's like the, the U.S. Open Cup. It's a Copa in Mexico. Um, we were playing a second division team. Uh, and I remember he, like one day before, a week before he, was, he told me I was going to start. And I was stoked and the day came and i didn't even make the 18 and i was like what what happened so then the next week what was all your family there ready to, to everyone, watch everyone was ready like they all had my shirts on like i told my friends my family they were all there and they were surprised they were like oh 
I thought you were going to play. You told me you were starting. He's like, I thought so too, but apparently the coach changed his mind. And that happens a lot. <laughs> so next week, he tells me the same thing. And I was like, I already heard this story, so I'm not going to tell anyone because it was embarrassing, to be honest. Like, I told everyone and that didn't happen. So this time I was like, no, I'm not going to tell anyone. If it happens, it happens. So I just told my parents and uh, a couple of family members, but not my friends or anything. And I told them, like, oh, listen, uh, they told me that I'm going to start. So be prepared if I don't. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it, it, a day came and uh, I, I had the shits. <laughs> Like, I don't know what it was, a hotel food or something, but I just, my stomach was killing me. Uh, people say it was like that I was nervous, but man, I just really think it was the food. <laughs> it nailed me. So I was hesitant. Should I tell him? Should I? I was like, nah, I'm not going to tell him. I'm just going to keep it to myself and just go with it. You know, like, it's just, if, if something happens, man, well, it's going to be embarrassing, but at least I already debuted it. And, um, yeah, the time came and he put me in a, as they were playing 4-4-2, I remember. We were playing 4-4-2 and, uh, they were playing me as a center, like center defensive mid, but with more, uh, liberty to go up. And it was something I wasn't that used to, but I was adapting and developing. And, um, in that game, just the, the formation of the other team, it just benefited me. And I would play more as a 10. It was more of a diamond in the middle. And, well, that's that's what I like. So I was lucky, and I actually had a very good game. And we ended up winning 2-0, and I provided one assist. So it was very positive for me. But after that, like, the coach congratulated me, but after that, I didn't play the rest of the season. So it was, it was, it was weird, you know? Like, just part of soccer and things that a lot of people don't know about but things constantly change and like it's someone making a decision and things just different things happen how did you world. deal with the with the frustrations well um i've always been a very positive guy and like i would i would always tell my my, my girlfriend or my friends that like I can like start moping and complaining, but that's not going to benefit me. And I need to like, if I really want to do it, I need to find out why it's not happening and keep giving him less uh, opportunities to say like, Oh, you're missing this. You're missing this. So I need to improve this and this. So I would constantly look for solutions. Like why am, why isn't he playing me? What does the team need? So I would focus on that and then. I would try to get better than that. And then I would accomplish that. And he's like, oh, what's happening? And I would get frustrated, obviously. I would get sad. It's okay to be sad and frustrated. You need to be. But then I would let, I would only let a day go by like that. And then I would look for the solution. But it took me a while because also a lot of like injuries were being, they were just following me. You know, maybe a lot of people say that I tried too hard to get what I want. And that's what made me like, tense up and like get injured but i mean that's the way i am and i'm trying to look for solutions i want to play and um yeah um so i would deal with the frustrations just like uh, looking for solutions all the time 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To someone who is not very familiar with the Mexican League and has never experienced uh, a game, how would you describe that? So... If you told me last season, I would describe it differently than this season because there's a new rule. Um, now there's up to 10 foreigners that can play in the team and the rest have to be Mexican. So before it was only five foreigners. But what happened is like after the third or second year, you could, uh, you could become a Mexican and you wouldn't count as a foreigner. So a lot of players well known and that have been there a long time would stay there and they would count as Mexicans. So the age average would increase and that would cause that the game would be slower. And like, I would tell you, like, it would be more of like a, um, just a slow paced game with a lot of like experienced players. And it was hard to get into that because you had to take one of the experienced players who knew everything. But now that changed and it's bringing more South American talent younger, 20, 20, 23, 24, 25. And it's making the game very fast-paced. So now the Mexican League is more fast-paced. There's a lot of more youth. And it's very dynamic, similar to what was happening in Holland. So that's changed a lot. Yeah. And from uh, from from an atmosphere and from like the stadiums, like can you can you describe that? I've never been down uh, to experience a game of, you know, the only options I have around me here are, you know, the Red Bulls, the New York City FC, very or, different, or, or or the Cosmos. Well, it's very different. It's very South American, you know. There's uh, there's the supporters, like, I don't, I don't know. It's La Barra, that's how they call it. It's like just stuff. Yeah, the, the main, the main, the main, 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 main support, main fans, yeah. Right. And uh, they're called La Masacre and Cholos. And they're just great. They're there every single game. The whole game, they're standing up, jumping, dancing, uh, singing the songs of the club that they make up. And they're so powerful. It's amazing. And they're always there in the, in the good and the bad. And then the stadium around, it's just amazing because even if we have cup games they and we're losing and we're doing bad, they stay till the very end. And it's always filled up. We have a stadium of 27,000 people right now. It's going to grow, but it's always filled. And then you see people standing up because there's not enough seats because they want they they sell more seats you know how it works of course yeah yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're standing up 
watching the game and it's just incredible man. we have one of the best fan bases in mexico it's always full and it's 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 very interesting because it's a lot of it's a family setting you know tijuana there's not a lot of in like in that stadium we're not known for violence there's been one fight maybe that and that's been it and you see a lot of families there you see a lot of kids there and uh it's a very friendly environment except in the in navarra that's a little bit more rowdy a lot of jumping a lot of, but the other parts more mellow they're enjoying the game they're having their their drinks the cervecita things like that so it's it's very it's very nice i'm making plans to to come down and, yes. and watch you guys I've, i've heard it's quite a quite a cool experience you're gonna love it man so in in talking let, let's get in now and, and talk a little bit more about the about the club because it is a, a very unique story not only located in a in a unique place and thereof the uh, the documentary that that's now screening and that you've been part of can you tell me a little bit about like kind of from the beginning like the the history of the club so tijuana there's been other owners that have attempted to have a team in tijuana and it was always in, in second division primera uh, but they were never successful it was never a serious project i remember chivas tijuana was an example but like they would never like put the seriousness into the project and then um until jorge alberto came which is hank family they're very well known in tijuana they and they're they have a lot of money and economic power What's their business? Well, right now they have um, uh, casinos, the Casino Caliente, and uh, they his uh, the dad has been a political figure in Mexico for a long time, and they have a lot of money. And uh, when he when they came, we all knew it was serious. They're serious businessmen. They know what they're doing, and um, he actually gave his project to his son Jorge Alberto Hank when he was twenty three years old. Yeah. And next, uh, they hired uh, someone in the business of soccer as a GM who is very experienced and has been a coach, a player. He's been a GM in other institutions named Nacho Palau. And those two, he kind of showed him the ropes and they created a serious project. And in two years, they... Sorry, what year was that when it got started? Um, I think it was 2007. Yeah, 2007. So very young. Very young, very young. And they immediately had success. They almost, like the first two years, they the first year they almost uh, won. Like in Mexico, you play uh, to go, to promote or uh, send to the uh, first division. There's two tournaments, the clausura and the apertura. You have to win the clausura and the apertura. Or if two different teams win it, they play in a final to know to go to see who's gonna go into first division so it was in the second year i think that they uh they won the clausura i mean the apertura and then they were about to win the clausura but they lost it and so they had to play the winner of the clausura and they did it they did it in like two or three years it was amazing so there was in first division already and what was even more amazing was that a year and a half later They were champions of the first division, so it was it was never done before. It was been the early, the they broke a record and everything. It was amazing, 
And ever since that, the club has been growing and growing and growing. And now they're one of the best teams in Mexico. And they went to Copa Libertadores and they got international recognition. And it's just improving so much now. Now they're doing all the youth teams and they're bringing in Mexican-Americans. They're just doing it right. And they have a very serious project. How would you say it has impacted that society? Oh, man, you should see it's impacted greatly. I mean, you see Americans from all over California, all over the uh, United States going and enjoying a Liga MX game. And, like, it's just amazing how it's attracting all these Americans that used to be scared of going into Tijuana. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to go watch Mexico, uh, uh, Liga MX game. And then we're going to go and then eat at the taco shops. And then we're going to get in a taxi or Uber from there. And it's just affected it so much because it's brought confidence back into the Americans and to, when, to the people that Tijuana is a good spot. And it's it's changed. How would you say as a... You know, a, a professional player in, in that environment. Granted, you don't, you know, live there, but obviously you, you see the society and there is still, of course, a lot of contrasts. Also, because it's such a unique city being so close to the border. So it's not only, you know, the Mexicans who've lived there for a while. It's also a lot of people who, you know, maybe recently came from further down in South America trying to cross the border. They might have stayed there. So there's still a lot of you know, contrasts, uh, and, and then being kind of a professional player in, in that environment, like how would you describe those contrasts? And is that anything that you're ever kind of exposed to? Or is it that you guys live in a bit of a closed world in that sense? Does no, that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, there's definitely a contrast of socioeconomic in there. Um, and I've been exposed to it because uh, I've lived in Tijuana. And um, where I used to play, it was very, like, where I used to play, there it was a very poor area where uh, a lot of, a lot of Tijuanenses would go and take their kids or they would get the bus and play there and uh, they didn't, maybe didn't have money to go uh, to eat and um, we would, like, my friends and I would take them to eat or my family would take them to eat. And like I would, I got to know that that part of town as well. And then, uh, then I got to know the other part of town through going to the U.S. and like being fortunate enough. Like we were, like my family was in, in uh, was very. Um, we weren't in a good economic situation, but my parents, <laughs> they were amazing, and they would take the burden and get, but and like just. Uh, take a uh, have a bunch of um, they would have just so many expenses and like they would uh, se dice cuando tienes eh, deuda uh, debt they had a lot of debt sorry I just went blank they had so much debt built up because they were trying to put us in good schools and for us to have a good education and they would take that toll and Luckily, after I could help them with that and my brothers as well. But I mean, that made me experience being with people that were well, doing well. And it was just a different social 
mm, just different social uh, background. You know, they had economic, different economic background. They were very well off. They were from important families in Mexico and in the U.S. And then I had the other part where I was in the soccer and they were not doing so well and their parents struggled to, to even give them five pesos to get, take the bus and go play a soccer match. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I was definitely and still am exposed to that. And I think that spilt me as a man and made me appreciate both sides because they're both beautiful. They both have their unique stuff and I enjoy that a lot. Tell me about the team today. I know there's, from what I understand, quite a few who probably have a similar story as yourself with, you know, being American or at least American mm-hmm. citizen. And then you you mentioned that you have also South Americans from from other parts. So just tell me a little bit about the the team composition today. Right. So right now we have seven Americans, Mexican Americans. Uh, three of them are. Well, they're all in the youth national team setup, and then Paul Ariola right now is with the full men's national team. Greg Garza has been with them, Michael Orozco. And then um, we have uh, seven or eight uh, Argentinians, different parts of Argentina. but uh, And then we have two Colombians, and the rest are Mexican. Mm-hmm. So that's right now the composition of the team, basically. Argentinians, Americans, Mexicans, and two Colombians. Which ones are the the ones that take the biggest room in the locker room? Um, in defi- person personality, yeah, wise. definitely the Argentinians. Yeah, they they totally. do they do everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they do. It's amazing. That I was actually talking to to Paul the other night, and we were like, "Why are the Argentinians so strong? Like, not just in this locker room, just in every in the world. Like, why is there so many Argentinians? What what are they doing right?" that they're just a big influence in soccer and they have so many players. And like, I think it's interesting. We should look into more of their model of how they develop a lot of players and like give them opportunities at such a young age. That's what I talk to with my teammates, with Fede Vilar or Dauch. And it's like, you know what? Like over there in Argentina, they give them opportunities at 16, 17. And after that, they just leave and they go to to Europe or they go to South America and uh, Mexico and they're just exposed and they mature quickly and I think that's a big reason but yeah it's definitely the Argentinians that take up the space and uh, um, I, I've learned a lot from them to be honest you, you have a an interesting character as a coach it's Miguel Herrera yes still who uh, Internationally, so you know, he was the the Mexican national team coach until uh, an incident uh, mm-hmm. with with some reporters, and and he is a big profile also for his looks and how active he is in and around the games. Tell me about him and his uh, his specific like coaching style. He's impressed me because, uh, well, when when he came, uh, he was he's very famous in Mexico, obviously because of the national team. But even before then. He was in America, Atlante, he's done well. Uh, but he was always known for playing with a line of five. Line of five, five, two, three, five, three, two, but always line of five. And he will never switch that. He rarely did. 
And uh, so my expectation was that we were going to play a line of five all the time. And um, so when he got here, and indeed we started with a line of five last season. He started with a line of five, and I was like, oh, he's not going to move from the line of five. But this season, uh, he switched to a line of four because he realized that the line of five wasn't working for him. So that, that, that made me think and, like, realize that, oh, look at this guy. Like, he's pragmatic. He knows this is not working, and he's going to look for the solution, and he, he did it. And I earned a lot of respect towards that because now we're in first place and because of that decision. And then he, he like, I've lived through a lot of coaches in Mexico. It's very constant that they, sorry, they that they, um, in Mexico, that they switch coaches frequently. And uh, so I've had a lot of experiences with different coaches and their coaching style and how, like, players influence sometimes and, well, a lot all the time in the locker room and in the coaches' decisions and, like, you have to, like, control egos and all that stuff. And Piojo just knows how to do that, knows how to integrate a group, uh, knows how to pick the right leaders and give them the authority and uh he knows how to deal with all that stuff and it's been impressive to see how he manages the group i think that's one of his strongest things as well and he's also a motivator like he has a very good package he has the motivation he has the knowing how to manage a group and tactically he's impressed me plus he builds himself he's a smart guy he he has a good group of people behind him support him with the physical the the technical and the tactical as well he he's a good he's a good coach what are some of the things that he asks you to to work on well i remember um so when uh when he was announced as a coach our u20 coach was the one that took over and we had three games left of the season And uh, Miguel Herrera saw me play, and he told me, "All right, I want him to start." He wasn't the he wasn't the coach yet. It was still the U20s coach, but he was making decisions, and uh, because he had something with the Liga that he couldn't uh, coach because he was the national team coach in that year, so they had to wait. And uh, he put me in, liked me. He wouldn't tell me anything during the those three games, but after that. He was like, oh, you're going to be a big part of my plan, and I want you to do, I want you to play as a, so they were, they were playing 5-3-2, and he wanted me with more liberty to go and, like, carry the ball and provide assists and just be more of an attacking-minded player. Um, and then when the league started, I mean, when preseason came and we started to get to know him, he was using me in, like, that, uh, is it Ganchi Interior, which is, um like, a... It's, cause it's difficult with the line of five. I don't know how to call it, but it's uh, like an attacking mid, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted me to carry the ball, shoot from distance, look for those balls in between lines, look for the idol, which is our goal, goal scorer. And uh, defensively, just come back. Like, just come back to your position, and take up the space, and... So that was very easy for me, like instructions. Like he would make it very easy. It, uh, but unfortunately, um, I got injured and uh, I, 
I couldn't play, but he would also be very specific that he wanted me to change pace because I'm a thinker and I'm more of like, uh, I, I like to play a pass and, uh, I'm always running at the same pace, but he changed me in the sense that now, um, cause I, I feel like I, I'm, I can take a player on. I know how to get by a player, but then after that, I look for the pass and he told me, no, like you have to carry the ball more. So another one comes and then you can uh, play a pass and open up a spot for someone. So yeah, that, that's what he was trying to change in me a little bit more to carry more of the ball, carry, carry, carry and shoot from distance. And then when I came back, like I, I knew that I needed to work on that. And so I started doing it and he was very happy with me. Like he, I was barely back on the field and he was already putting me in the Copa MX because he saw in the trainings that I was doing that and it was leading up to goals and assists. So I was being a different uh, game changer for him. But unfortunately, again, the injury happened and I'm here again. Well, the I guess the only way, and you, you're a positive guy, you already said it, I think the only way to look at injuries and these types are that it also gives you a little bit of time to to reflect and maybe not only come back a bit stronger physically, but from a more mature player potentially, because now you have the the time and the opportunity to kind of analyze things and uh, uh, and come back a more mature player. Definitely, I've I have so much time now in my hands, and uh, it's just taking advantage of it. I've been able to uh, continue my studies. Uh, what, what are you studying? So I'm doing cognitive science. Yeah, because I want to be a coach. That's my... So I want to get to know players, get to know thinking processes, and eventually use that because I know that's a big thing. And I also, in my time off, I watch so many soccer games. And I write down tendencies and I write down of coaches and players and things like that. So I'm constantly watching games, writing it down. My file, I have a file of soccer matches and like, video clips of like certain movements that I want my players to do and things like that. So yeah, yeah, I'm preparing myself. And then, um, yeah, listening to your podcast about that, um, Jeremy, uh, also made me start thinking about other opportunities and things that I, I can, uh, prepare myself for. So, yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit and, uh, because I'm really interested in the in the cultural side of things. And one question, uh, Mexican culture is obviously filled with rituals. Mm -hmm. For somebody who has no idea about w what those are, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? And then also, how does that express itself, whether it is in the locker room or in the lead up to games? So um, something we do, a ritual we do with the club a lot and before every game, We all huddle up and we pray. We all pray. We do uh, Ave Maria and uh, Padre Nuestro. We always do that before a game. And then, then our coach talks. And then Is that in the locker room? That's in the locker room. That's including the players, the staff around the players, the, the masseuses, everyone. Everyone's there. And then we have uh, like a little uh, like chapel next to the to the locker room where a lot of players go and they bring their offerings to to god or to the virgin maria 
and uh, bring flowers sometimes. So that's another neat ritual that in Mexico is very common. Very, very common. And yeah, that, that's, I think that's the biggest one. Mexican, they're very religious and, um, they're constantly, they have their, uh, uh, scapularios. I don't know how they call it. Uh, or their bracelets with the Virgen Maria or things like that. There's also a lot of, um, uh, I can't remember how they say them, but, uh, how to translate this word. It's, uh, Cabalas. Uh, Cabalas? Not sure what that is, actually. Like things you do for good luck. Uh huh, you know? Like, like you wear your lucky socks and like these socks. They do that a lot. What do you do? Well, not me personally, but like over there, um, I've heard uh, people use like the same socks or just things like that or the same cleats. Uh, some people, uh, like they have to like hop on with their right foot when they step on the field or they they do the ritual of like um they need to listen to certain songs things like that everyone has their own little things but yeah um there's a lot of um cabalas how they say it do you see any differences between yourself um since you have the the american side as well and and the the mexican born and bred players yes definitely there's, uh, I feel like I, ha um, Mexico, they're very emotional. Well, I don't want to generalize, but, um, this is from I've lived and like the experiences I've had that, um, the players that have come into the U.S., they're a lot like I compare myself with Paul, Greg, we're a little bit more like we see the world in a more structured mindset and like with objectives and like how we need to get to those objectives and like it's just everything is like we're a bit more structured and disciplined in mexico they're more of like oh i'm just we say they just do what's um i don't know how to describe it what's the right word but yeah i i definitely see that it's a, we're different we're different um we have that uh american uh upbringing with uh going to school and being more serious about going to school in mexico like you see a lot of players that like don't go to school and don't finish high school or secundaria which is the form of high school preparatoria and uh i think that at the end doesn't take a toll on them because they're not as prepared for the outer world which is like soccer is just a small part of like the whole society and the whole world that we live in and it affects them when their decisions in the field and off the field you see a lot of players with problems economically a lot of players that have problems that have different kids all over the world the world mexico and then they lose money because of agents or like wives and it's just i think it's you see that more often in mexico and south americans than Americans like I just don't like in the MLS I have a lot of friends and I don't hear that like those stories you know Mexico you're I have players in the youth team that already have kids they have families that they need to support and uh, I think that has a lot to do with the upbringing they've had and the education they've had yeah does that ever cause any tension or or frustrations 
Yeah, for sure. There's always tensions and it affects the players greatly, but they just don't take conscious of their actions sometimes. And they don't understand that if they do something, it's going to affect them. And I think it's a, they just sense the, the soccer world differently because they need a plate to give money to their kids and give their family and maybe some Americans do it because they love it. And, you know, it's just different things. Do you follow the MLS? I do. But uh, to be honest, I see one or two games. I like Dallas right now. Uh, I just saw the New York City FC with Revs. But I usually watch more uh, European games. Mm -hmm. How do you see the, what are some of the main differences that you kind of see between, let's say, the MLS and and the Mexican League? Um, right now is the level of play. There's a lot of difference because, first of all, uh, there's a lot. The players that are in Liga MX, most of them all make the same amount. Well, not most of them, but like their average of income is similar. So that means like usually like the players level is similar. And in the U.S., it's just all over the place. You can see Pirlo, David Villa, and then you have making like six million. Then you see someone else that is making 30,000. And that's obviously like the level of play is going to be different because you're worth. It's a big difference in the worth. So, yeah, like. That's the first difference I see and it's a major role in how they play, you know. Uh, there's less talent. So talking about talent, uh, what are some of the things you would say American players uh, growing up should pay more attention to? Tactics. See how the other team plays. Why does he do that? What, what happened before that? I think... We need to be more tactical. We have to bring our tactical awareness up because there's people that know how to trap a ball. There's, but sometimes you don't trap it correctly because you don't know where to, to put it, you know, where to, where it leads to. And I think that's the most important thing. Tactical awareness, even more than the technique, like the technique, like people know how to trap a ball. They know how to do that. But if you don't know where to do it and if you don't like, if your tactical awareness, you know that um, you will uh, where you have to put the ball in and, and like where your teammate is. So it makes it just more fluid and it makes it easier for you. And then you get confidence with that one pass because you already did it right. And then you keep building on. And I think that's tactical awareness. If you know where you're going to run, if you know what you're going to do. You, you'll be confident and then you'll be able to do other amazing stuff. Yeah. And the. Yeah, really, really f functional technique in that in in that sense, right? And understanding how do you use it and in different situations. And exactly. How do you view the um, since well, you, you know, you've played a lot with the U uh, U.S. national teams and come across a lot of you know players, young players and players your age. And there is I don't know if you follow, but there is you know a little bit of this debate of you know should young players should they leave at an early age to go well in this case now there are a bunch of players who go to Liga MX mm -hmm. uh, some might go to Europe to some of the youth academies and there is a bit of a d debate whether you know some are saying that they should stay here longer or they should go for the MLS and play there before they leave and others are saying that they're not getting enough schooling and they should leave earlier on uh, you know to go somewhere else how do you see 
How do you see that? I I see that as first they need to be if they want to stay, they need to get serious. They need to get serious about improving the way they're going to get to professionals and improving the youth development if they want them to stay. Right now, to be honest, there's not a good system. Like they're still like being seen with college if it's going to go, if they're going to develop through college. Like they need to define a system and then then the players will eventually like start staying and they're like, oh, okay, like is this worth my time? And then like also the money, like they need to give us uh, something to go for, you know, like, uh, like I don't want to be making 35,000. That's why I go to Europe and or Mexico and like I make more money like that. That has to do a lot with it too. You know, you have to give them uh, something to strive for. And yes, then players, once they start being more serious about that and developing players, the first players are probably going to take the toll on it. But it's going to build for the next generation for them to be actually stay in the MLS and work their way up and make it competitive. And then, but right now, I think the best thing is still going to Europe and developing and going to different countries and developing because they're more advanced than the MLS. They're, they have more years doing it. They're, they have a better system. But I think it's time for the US to start doing it. And some players are going to take the risk and maybe it's not going to be as good as for them. Maybe it is, you know, there's different cases, but I feel like then the other generations are going to benefit from that. If you were to um, predict and I guess pave the way a bit for, for your own career and where you are, obviously, unfortunately, you're injured at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we were to look at the next five years and in an ideal scenario, what does it look like? Play with Cholos. Like get back from injury. Get my confidence back. Start start for Cholos. Then uh, get a couple, uh, a season, two seasons. Go with the national team. I want to go to Russia. I want to go to the World Cup. Then I want to, if, if everything works out and I play in Russia, I want to play, I want to be in the starting 11, try to go to Europe. My dream is still intact and I still want to do it. I, still, I know I can do it. And then from there, have a experience in Europe, experience different cultures, experience the different leagues, get to know them, see how they do it, what they do right. And then I want to come back to the MLS because I want to help the U.S. I want the U.S. to be a powerhouse. I know we have the talent. I know we have the infrastructure. We have the money. We have everything at our disposal to be one of the best in the world, the best in the world. And I think we can achieve that. So first, I want to experience all these things so I can know what I'm talking about. I know because I've lived it. Not They haven't told me about it. I've been there and I want to get a, a good experience and exposure and then bring it back to the U.S. We're getting towards the end here. I'm going to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions. Okay. You, if you want to elaborate, you, you may do so. What's the biggest moment in your career so far? My injuries. They've defined me as who I am right now. In what sense? In the sense that I've grown up, matured, and that I'm a different person than I was before and after them. 
the best player you've played with? Best player I've played with. I have a couple, but the one that's impressed me the most was one of my teammates, Bellerano. He just knew where to be. He was like a Busquets. He just knew where to be, played simple, knew when to play that ball through the middle, knew when to make a long ball. He understood the, the concept of the game, and he was like knew how to control his emotions. Now, I think he was one of the best ones. I would go. I could never take the ball away from from him in training sessions. Like he was always one step ahead. The best team you've played against. We played uh, the U twenty threes in Brazil. With uh, they have Gabigol, they have uh, Luan, they had uh, just a bunch of experienced players in Europe already. Um, yeah, the U twenty threes of Brazil uh, won the Olympics recently. They were just filled with talent. Every single player could beat someone in a 1v1 situation. And it was amazing how, how much talent they have. It was full of talent. Tactically not the best, but talent, amazing. A recommendation to a young player that's looking to follow in your footsteps and, and become professional. Dedication. Passion and Dedication. You have passion, dedication, and discipline. You have to be disciplined about what you want. You have to love what you do and get to know things around it and just be dedicated towards it. I think that's the most important thing and that's gotten me where I am today. Who's your favorite team? My favorite team? Cholos. That was an easy one. Mm -hmm. You get to take three people in the football world for dinner. It can be anybody past or present, and let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are those three? Guardiola, Valdano, and um, I like to talk to Sachi. Saki. And you get to take them to uh, a good spot in Tijuana. <laughs> Where would that be? Take them for tacos. That's what they're known. <laughs> Do you have a specific spot to recommend? Yeah, um... Right now, we like the one in uh, next to the stadium. It's called Taconazo. That's where everyone goes after the games. And yeah, like I've had some good soccer conversations there with my friends and everything. So I think I would take them there. <laughs> Is there anything you feel we haven't covered? Um, or it can be something that you're passionate about. No, it's soccer. We've talked a lot about soccer. It's just that I really want people to to know that Tijuana is a very special place and it's changed a lot and it's not unsafe. It's very beautiful. It has a lot of things going for itself and everyone should give it an opportunity to get to know it and to go to Tijuana, watch a game of the Cholos, go, go to Valle de Guadalupe, uh, go to the beaches there, go, we have some amazing food, Bahamed food and you're, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to have a good time and you're going to come back with a different mentality about Tijuana, a different view of Tijuana. And you're going to, I'm positive that you're going to tell other people to go there. So just give it a try. How can people follow you? I am on Twitter, Instagram. I have a Facebook page as well. Um, and hopefully I'm going to be soon open up a blog about soccer things tactical things that i like to point out oh so you're gonna write i think so a little bit yeah in my spare time fantastic give me a post that i'll i'll, I'll publish it for sure 
Um, you. What's your uh, Twitter handle and it's, Instagram? Uh, a Guido. That's my t- uh, that's my Twitter handle and Alejandro Guido for Instagram. Uh, I know you touched it a little bit on, on now on our recommendation, but I was going to ask you: Is there anything you would like to recommend? Coffee and football, of course. But uh, I recommend watching soccer. You need to start watching the best the best teams, uh, especially for the American. You have to watch. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Manchester City, and just notice the differences. Notice why why there's they have success. What's the thing, and that'll make you a much better soccer player. It will. That's gonna improve you the most. Look at players that play in your position. See what they do. See how they get the ball. Why they're successful. And these things are will make you a better player for sure. I think that's my biggest recommendation. Last one. Who do you think I should interview next on this podcast? Guardiola. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely uh, make an attempt for that one. Same question. Give me somebody that you can introduce me to. Okay. I think you should talk to Chris Cashman, the producer of the movie, and see his, how he views Tijuana and why he did the movie and get to know more about the movie and Tijuana. From a different approach, from a different perspective. Fantastic! I will. Uh, I will definitely speak speak with Chris, and that's how actually we uh, got introduced here. And uh, yeah, I mean, thank you. Th- th- thanks a lot for for doing this. Uh, it's an amazing, you know, story and journey. Both, you know, you personally, and uh, then what you've gone through with with the club and where you are today and, and, and also what you represent that duality of, of Mexican American. So, so I think that that really provides an, an interesting, a unique, uh, and a much needed, uh, perspective for, for people to learn about. So I thank you for that and, uh, best of luck now with, uh, with recovering. And we look forward to seeing you in Russia, 2018. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I love talking about soccer and thank you for inviting me. I love what you're doing. I'll call you after Russia. We'll get you on for an episode too. Awesome. I'd love to. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. If you want to link up with me, feel free to send me an email at Sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. I'm also available on Twitter. It's coffees football. As a heads up, we'll be taking three weeks off to prep new episodes. We have an amazing lineup. We're now up to 12 episodes and the response has been tremendous. So thank you everyone who's been listening and stay tuned. We're back up in about three weeks. Thank you. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 